Our, our kids can head back uh, to be with our children's workers back there in Transformation Station. So uh, you'll notice that the twos and threes are going to load up on the elevator there with uh, Abby and Kathy. And then the fours and fives with Mr. Ben are going to walk down the stairs as we grow our children's ministry. Our logistics need to change a little bit. So and then the first through fifth grade, if you have a commuter kid, they will be meeting with uh, Naveen and Archana up here uh, in the conference room. So uh, we hope that our children enjoy some age-specific teaching and crafts and, and, uh, and music uh, downstairs as they uh, learn about God, these truths of, awesome truths about God uh, that, that we are learning uh, as well. So if you uh, have your Bibles, please open up to the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2 today. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you, it'll be page 981. Page 981, Philippians 2, and uh, we'll start in verse 12 in just a minute. So as John and I shared with you, we are starting a new series called Rhythms. Rhythms, trying to cultivate uh, disciplines of grace. So I think it's appropriate this morning to ask uh, a question that not only is relevant to our series, but even to the fact that we meet in, at Spring Step, which has been traditionally a dance studio. So my question for you is, do you have rhythm? Do you have rhythm? I'm talking musical rhythm now, okay? So if we were, you know, to drop a beat up here, you know, who could just kind of nod your head with me a little bit, huh? Can anybody do that? You know, I just got it like that. I can hear the melody in my mind, you know what I'm saying? Just that, that. I mean, and then you could just get a little more into it, a little... Little knees, you know what I'm saying? Huh? I didn't know. I forgot my head. There we go. Yep. So I, I, I might not be the greatest dancer in the world, okay? But senior prom, I mean, the, the, the brothers and the sisters want to see me out on the dance floor. You know what I'm saying? LaShonda in my homeroom, she got me out on the dance floor, and it was quite, quite the experience, uh, I must say. But, um, but, but whether, whether or not you have musical rhythm, okay, um, I think we all would agree we establish different rhythms in life, right? Daily rhythms, weekly rhythms that help us kind of organize our life and, and, and make it through in a, in a more kind of consistent and effective manner. So I don't know what the rhythms in your life look like, but I assume that you probably have some morning rituals, morning routines. I hope that all of us spend a little bit of time, you know, cleaning up, brushing our teeth. Those are some really good rhythms to get established. And perhaps you eat breakfast, kind of get energized for the work day. Maybe once you get to work, then you, you know, get your cup of coffee, say hi to the same people. And then when you're off work, perhaps if you have a dog, you, you walk your dog at the same time every day, see the same people in the park. Maybe there's a particular night of the week where you like to go out with your friends to a certain spot in the city and have a good time. But you see, we have all of these rhythms that kind of help make up uh, any given week in our life. And when we come to the Bible, what we see is that God wants us to not only have these daily rhythms that help us get through just our, our, our life in general, but he wants us to develop some spiritual rhythms that will help us to know him and to grow in our walk with him. And so what we need above everything else in our lives are rhythms of grace. Wants to think about rhythms of grace. Now, if you're like me, 
the temptation is to allow just the, the busyness of a work week, family commitments, other responsibilities, maybe whether they be, you know, uh, tasks that we have to accomplish or even the hobbies and interests that we love, uh, they tend to oftentimes push God to the back seat of our lives, right? And what we see, though, is that God doesn't want to be relegated to the backseat. He wants to have control of our lives. He wants us to devote our best time, our best thoughts, our best energies to him. And so this is why we have need to cultivate rhythms of grace. So I want to challenge us to consider how to cultivate rhythms of grace by working out what God works in you. All right? Cultivate rhythms of grace by working out what God works in you. And this is what we see from Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read them for us. You can follow along as I read. He writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So from verse 12, the first encouragement I wanna give you this morning is to discipline yourself to work out your salvation through rhythms of grace, all right? Discipline yourself. This is something we must actively pursue. You see, Paul planted this church in Philippi. If we go back to the book of Acts, we'll see in chapter 16 that he took the gospel into Macedonia, into the city of Philippi, and he shared the gospel, and people came to believe in Jesus and what he had done in his life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And so these Philippians now were believing in Christ, and they were growing in him, learning more and more what it looks like to give their life to God. And so Paul is writing this letter to them to encourage them how to live their life. And, he, and so he, he starts off and he says, you can, we can see the warm relationship that he had with them. He says, my beloved. He had a special relationship with the Philippians. They were, they were very caring of Paul and they were very generous toward him. And so Paul's concern is that even though he is not with them currently, that they would still make progress in the faith. So he says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue obeying Christ. You know how sometimes it is. We feel a little more confidence or a little more able to, to accomplish something when maybe our teacher is with us, right? And so Paul has this concern. We even see it pop up in chapter 1, verse 27. If you want to look back there, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Great verse. So that whether I come and see you or I am, I am absent, I may hear of your, your progress in the faith. So Paul's saying, you need to obey whether I am with you or whether I am absent absent, and then notice the word therefore. Okay, so like every word in the Bible is important. You know what I'm saying? So why is, does he say therefore? Well, he's just unpacked this beautiful statement on the person and work of Christ, exhorting the Philippians to be humble and to put others before themselves. And they say, well, where do we see humility and selflessness? We see it in the person of Christ, right? Who though he was God became man, 
Jesus, the God-man, and not only was obedient, but he was even obedient to the point of death. He sacrificed his life for us. But make no mistake, though he was crucified, he is now raised at the right hand of the Father, and every knee will bow before him one day. And so Paul says, in light of all this, this is what should motivate your obedience, the fact that Jesus Christ is humble, that Jesus Christ died for you, that we obey in light of his great obedience on our behalf. And, oh, by the way, let's not forget that one day every knee will bow before him. And so I want to ask you, are you ready for that day? It doesn't matter, you know, whether you may turn out to be the greatest missionary since the Apostle Paul, or if you're one of the most irreligious people in the city of Boston, Paul says every knee will bow before him. And so I hope that when that day comes, when your life is through, finished, that, that you will be ready to meet God because not because of what you have done as we've seen, but because of what Christ has done and this gift of salvation that he offers to all people. So Paul says, obey, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he, he tells them what this should look like, okay? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, okay? So let's just pause right here. Given the holiness of God, okay, all of the perfections of God. If, if, if you believe God exists, then surely it's not that much of a leap to think that this God is perfect in his essence, being, character, and work. Okay, so giving the holiness of God on the one hand, and on the other hand, given the sinfulness of man, okay, which we can establish that just by turning on the, the news at night or by looking in the mirror. Ouch. We are sinful people. And our sin separates us from a holy God. We haven't lived up to God's standard. We haven't obeyed his will for our life. So now we have this gap between us and God. How will it be reconciled? How can we be saved? Surely we all ask this question. And there are two fundamental answers usually given to this question. If we ask any person on the streets of Medford, hey, if you believe in God, how will you one day spend eternity with this God in heaven? Most people are probably going to give the first answer, which is work for it, earn it, be a good person, do enough good deeds, and then maybe God will accept me on the basis of my performance and trying to earn my way to heaven. But the second answer is the better answer. We do not work for our salvation. We receive it based on what Christ has done for us. And so we have to be very careful here when Paul is saying, work out your salvation, that we do not hear him saying, work for your salvation. That's not what Paul is saying. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, hopefully you know these verses. You need to know these verses if you don't know these verses. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so do you get the picture? It's not as if, you know, God does his part and then we come behind it and we do our part for salvation, okay? Salvation is all of God's grace. And I believe the language here, okay, follow me here. I believe the language, work out your salvation, is even an argument for salvation by grace. You say, well, how is that, Tanner? It's because how do you work out that which you don't already possess? 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can pick up a, a dumbbell here, do some curls, but the reason that's going to work out in my muscles is because I have a muscle to begin with. And so Paul's saying these Philippians, they possess salvation through faith in Christ. They're called saints. He's confident that, that God will begin this good work that he started in them. Just go back and read chapter 1, verse 6. And so now he's saying, work it out. Make progress. And to drill down a little more, just so we don't get confused here by the language, the difference in understanding working out our salvation is the difference between justification and sanctification, okay? So these are theological words. They're in the Bible, so we really need to understand them, okay? We are justified through faith in Christ. God makes us a new person. He forgives us of our sin, and now he counts us righteous because what Christ has done. So this is the beauty of the cross. This is the meaning of the cross. When Jesus died for us on the cross, if we look to him in faith, there is this great exchange that happens, right? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on the cross. Jesus takes the penalty of my sin, your sin, if you're looking to him in faith. And not only does he take our sin, but he gives us his righteousness, so now that when God looks at Tanner, he doesn't see sinful Tanner that in no way would ever deserve to be in his presence one day, but he sees Christ, the righteousness of Christ covering me. So I've been justified, I've been counted righteous, and I am free from the penalty of my sin. The wages of sin is death, it's eternal separation from God. So justification is a one-time act. It's like a courtroom, right? The judge levels, he throws the gavel down, boom, it's over, counted righteous in Christ. But then sanctification, on the other hand, is being made more righteous. It's a process, it's progressive. We're becoming more and more and more like Christ. That's a very easy definition of sanctification. We're just becoming more like Christ day by day, month by month, year by year. Hopefully the, the, the person that I am today isn't the person that I was five years ago, 10 years ago, because God is constantly changing my life. And if you're in Christ, then he is constantly changing your life. So we're not just freed from the penalty of our sin, we're freed, we're being freed from the power of our sin in our daily lives. And if you battle sin at all, which I know you do, this is very good news for us. And so when Paul is saying, work out your, your salvation, your own salvation in verse 12, he's speaking of sanctification, not justification. And he says, you need to work this out with fear and trembling. So to work out means we pursue maturity in Christ. We are seeking to develop the character of Christ as we, as we grow in him. And, and some people will, will hear, you will hear this, okay? Some people will say, just let go and let God. You ever heard this? Has this maybe been some counsel that you've received or maybe you've given it to people before? Just let go, let God. And at one kind of tiny level, okay, I'm not trying to be like a theological, you know, um, nitpick here, but, but, you know, if we're talking about casting our anxiety on God because he cares for us, First Peter 5, then that's a really good thing. We want to we cast our anxiety on God and trust God. But even in the casting of our anxiety on God, even in the letting of go, we are active, Right? So we can't just let go and let God, but, but the moment we let go, we need to continue praying. We need to continue trusting. We need to continue setting our minds on things above. 
So there's always a responsibility and action where we work out our salvation. We all have a personal responsibility to work toward this Christ-likeness. So we'll see phrases in the Bible, like 2 Peter 1, where it says multiple times, make every effort. Make every effort. This is something that's active. It's, 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 it's really athletic terms that we see in the Bible to describe what should be going on in our spiritual lives. And so this is why theolog- theologians have referred to um, this pursuit as cultivating spiritual disciplines, okay? Richard Foster wrote a really great book on the disciplines called The Celebration of Discipline. And this is what he says in that book. He says, train, uh, he says, God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that, he can transform us, okay? So what happens is we, we pursue these disciplines, these, these habits of devotion, if you will, so that God can work his sanctifying grace in our lives as we place ourselves before him each day. So we're talking about habits of devotion and not legalistic ritual, okay? So when we start talking about discipline, we start talking about working out our salvation, then some people will be afraid and say, well, you know what? It's just gonna become this performance where you try to earn God's favor and it's gonna become ritualistic. And what is a ritual? It's just empty action devoid of meaning and substance. And so that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about habits of devotion, placing ourselves under streams of grace, rivers of grace, that when we come to God in worship, this is a spiritual discipline. This is a corporate discipline we do together as a church. When we open up our Bible through the week and read it and we hear from God in his word, when we pray regularly, when we serve others, when we give back to God, all of these things are disciplines by which God works his grace into our hearts and he makes us more like Jesus. So let me ask you the question, how spiritually fit are you? Are you pursuing God in this kind of disciplined manner? Are you spiritually fit? Or if you were to look in the kind of spiritual mirror of your life, are you a little out of shape? Have you been a little lazy with your pursuit of God? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. He says, train yourself. Some translations say, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, why is this important, Paul? He says, for bodily training is of some value. Okay, so don't hear Pastor Tanner up here saying, don't go work out, don't, you know, exercise. In fact, some of us definitely need to, you know, hit the weight room or hit the walking trail or the bike trail and get in a little bit better shape, okay, myself included. So Paul is saying physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both this life and the life to come. So do you see the picture here? Do you see what's going on? Do you think if we were to walk over to Gold's Gym in Medford, we would see a bunch of, you know, 200 to to 280-pound guys tiptoeing around, you know, with little five-pound dumbbells and, you know, just showing up a couple times a month? I mean, does anyone think this is what we would see there? Not at all, right? They're there multiple times a week. Some of them are there every single day. 
They're breaking a sweat. They have veins popping out all over their body. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have gone there. But um, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they are working hard. They're disciplining themselves. They're strategic. They're intentional so that they can be in the best physical shape to accomplish whatever it is they want to accomplish or to look really good for, you know, the ladies on Riviera Beach. I don't know what their motivation is, but, but you, get the, you get the point, right? You get the point. Hey, be beautiful on the inside. That's what we tell our girls every single night before we put them in bed. Now, that's more important than the external beauty, but, but you get the point, right? You get the point. Physical training is of some value. Godliness has value for everything, holding promise for this life and the life to come. So the, the implications, the results, the benefits are massive. And I'll just say this, okay? If you will look at your life, I can do this in my own life. If you'll just look at your life, I guarantee there is a correlation between your pursuit of God through the spiritual disciplines and your spiritual health. So when you, when you go to the word again and again and again, when you're active in prayer, when you're worshiping with other people week in, week out, I guarantee you are gonna have more joy, more peace when trouble comes your way, greater love for God and one another. It's just the way that it works. When we place ourselves under the rivers of God's grace, he cleanses us and he uses us for his glory. So we need to discipline ourselves by working out our salvation through these rhythms of grace. But here's, here's the danger with this. Again, we kind of touched on it a minute ago, but the danger is to then, as we work really, really hard and we break a sweat for God, then our temptation is to go back to the default mode of our heart, which is to rely on ourselves, to do all of this in our own strength. And so Paul understands this. So that's why he carries on in verse 13. And what does it say? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so God says, work out your salvation, but our sanctification is actually a gift of his grace as well. It's, it's God's gracious action in us. We work out our salvation because God is at work in our lives. So, so it's important. We need to, to understand that these spiritual disciplines are not the source of grace and strength for us to thrive spiritually, okay? God is the source of strength and grace for us to thrive spiritually, and they come through the spiritual disciplines. Do you see that? So there's a distinction there. I'm not coming to the Bible and coming to, to prayer and, and, and serving others, thinking that those particular actions are the gift in and of themselves or the source in and of themselves. God is the one behind it. And I know some of you are probably thinking, you know what, Tanner? Man, I get that, but... I don't really believe that God can work in my life. I don't have a lot of confidence that, that God, because of everything that I've done, all my past, the baggage that I carry, I don't think that God could do it. And then some of, some of you are probably a little overconfident. Perhaps you're a little arrogant. That's one thing that's keeping you from the, the spiritual disciplines. And you, say, you think, man, I'm all set. I've got it all together spiritually. Man, I don't need these to, to be true of my life. And so if you're in either camp, let me give you the words of Jerry Bridges who says this. He says, your worst days are never so bad 
that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. That's really good news. But your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need for God's grace. You got that? Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond his reach. It doesn't even matter where you come from, what you have going on in your life, how great your sin may be. God can reach down in his grace and work in your life. And at the same time, we're never so put together, spiritually speaking, that we don't need his grace. We are in need of his grace every single day. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to see our spiritual poverty every single day, see our need before God, so that we'll come to him again and again and again. And when we do, he works in us. And he works in us in two ways, okay? It's right here in verse 13. Number one, God works new desires in us. It says, for, for God is at work in you both to will and to work. So the first piece, he works in us to will. He works in us at the level of motivation and desire to give us new desires that line up with his will for us. So it's not enough just to, to say, oh, you know, I know I need to, to go after that without having the desire to actually accomplish it. And so Paul is saying every good desire that we have is a gracious gift of God that he is producing in us to give us new and holy desires. The gospels are filled with this kind of uh, language and picture. One of my favorite parables is the treasure hidden in a field, right? It says there was a man walking and he finds this treasure that is hidden in a field and it says that he covers it up and then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can buy that field. Now why would he do that? Why would he sell everything in his life so that he could earn that, so he could have that? It's because that which is in the field is better than everything else he left behind. And when we see Christ, when we see who God is, what he's done for us, there is this, as Thomas Chalmers said in the 19th century, there is this expulsive power of a new affection, a new desire that says God is better. God's way is better. It's better for me to obey God and have his blessing and his joy than everything else that I could possibly leave behind in my life. And so it's the grace of God that works that in us to give us new desires, to want the things of God over against the things that are so alluring and tempting in the world. So God changes us at the level of our desire. And then he also not only gives us these desires, but he pushes us to obedient action. So it says to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so Paul is saying God gives us the energy to enable us to do the very thing that he commands us to do. This is, this is huge news. I mean, God does not just say, hey, go do this, go love your neighbor and treat your kids well and, you know, be a great worker, work hard in the workplace and, you know, forgive when you are offended. He doesn't just say to do all of these things and leave us, you know, high and dry without the strength and energy to accomplish them, but God gives us everything that we need to accomplish his will. Paul 
in Colossians chapter one. I love this. He says, him we proclaim, verse 28, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, so this is the goal of Paul's ministry. He wants to see people work out their salvation and become mature in Christ. But now verse 29, what does he say? For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So when Paul says he, he toils, the Greek word means to, to, to labor to the point of exhaustion. This is how Paul lived his life. He, he worked hard for God. He wanted to give his life away. He would sacrifice sleep. He, he would endure persecution. He would, he would um, just walk from city to city so that he could proclaim the gospel. Paul worked very, very hard. He struggled. That word is the, the Greek word agonizomai, which comes, we get our word agonize from it, agony. So, so he's saying, I'm laboring to the point of exhaustion, and it's an agonizing work that I am putting forth for God. But that's not all, he says, I do it, and as I do so, it is his energy that he is powerfully working within me. So we work really hard, but we work really hard in the strength that God is supplying for us to work out our salvation. God works in us both to will and to work, to act, to do according to his good pleasure. And so how do we hold these in tension, right? I mean, this is, this is kind of difficult to wrap our minds around. I mean, you're saying, Tanner, we need, to, we need to discipline ourselves. We need to beat our body, make it our slave. We need, to, we need to give ourselves to God every single day. And yet we do so in the strength that he supplies. Well, Jerry Bridges has this awesome little phrase, okay, that I want you to really drill into your mind and heart today, okay? I've put it in as bold font as I possibly could find, all right? <laughs> Dependent discipline. Dependent discipline. These are two wings of the plane, he says, that we can't fly without the other. We need discipline on the one hand, but we absolutely have to have dependence on the other. So we bring these together and we depend on God every single day to be disciplined that we might receive these streams of grace. Do you see that? It's dependent discipline. So when I wake up in the morning, August 5th, 2013, I can have great expectation and I can be eager to put my best foot forward for God all the while praying and trusting and resting in the fact that it is God who is going to give me desires that look like his desires and strength to accomplish whatever it is that he's asked me to accomplish. So we discipline ourselves, but we do so dependent on God working in us. Now, what are the results? Here's the third and final encouragement for you this morning. Enjoy the results of gospel renewal through dependent discipline. Enjoy the results of gospel renewal through dependent discipline. What are the results of dependent discipline? Let me give you four, okay? Number one, we will be changed. I mean, after all, Paul's saying we are working out our own salvation. So the goal when we decide to follow Christ and give our life to him is that we will be made more and more like him. 
And so this is, this is what some people call gospel renewal happening in our life. And what that refers to is the power of the gospel at work in us to change us in clear and evident ways. It's what some people call, when it happens on a corporate scale, revival. And how does this happen? We often think that it has to be through like the huge moments, the extraordinary moments and steps, you know, kind of these fireworks that go off in our lives to see gospel renewal happen in our own hearts. But listen to what people who study revivals say about how this happens, okay? Tim Keller is one of those people, and this is what he says. He says, gospel renewal or revival is is simply, we could probably throw in there, an intensification of the normal operations of the Spirit through the ordinary means of grace. All right, now I know that's a lot there, but let me break this down. He says it's, it's an intensification, a heightened uh, degree of the normal operations of the Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, right? Hey, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't go there. You shouldn't say that. You need to change that area of your life. Okay, so the Spirit is showing us that. The Spirit gives us life. So whenever someone decides to forsake their old life and and pursue Christ and have this new life, that's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit sanctifies us. The work of the Spirit gives us assurance of grace. So all of these things, Keller's saying, they're, they're heightened. We see it happening more, more clearly, more evidently, more rapidly, more frequently. But how does, how does this happen? It happens through the ordinary means of grace. So this, just opening our Bible, hearing it with humility, praying, the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, and we could throw in other means of grace that we're talking about in this series, serving others, worshiping together. All, all of this, they are just ordinary means of grace. But when we put ourselves in the ordinary means of grace and we pursue God with all of our heart, this is how the Spirit works in us. Now, here's what I love as a pastor to think about and to pray about, okay? And John, I talk about this a lot for Redemption Hill. What happens if not just a couple of people at Redemption Hill get really serious about our walk with God and are experiencing personal gospel renewal day by day, week by week. But what happens if that's multiplied again and again and again and again and again? What happens if, if that's going on? Corporate gospel renewal, right? It's not just people changing, but it's a church changing. So we begin to then experience gospel renewal, revival, the spirit being poured out on us as a church so that then the the spirit is, is, is working in such a way that people have to take notice. Man, what's up with these people? They really are different. They have a different kind of power to live their life on a daily basis. They're not concerned about themselves, but they live for the sake of God and other people. And so... We will not only be changed, but the church will also be changed. Verse 14 just gives us a really practical exhortation of what it means to work out our salvation. Paul goes on to say, do all things without grumbling or questioning. So this then changes the way that we relate to one another because we have been changed in how we relate to God. 
So when, when we discipline ourselves through dependent discipline, God changes us, God can change our church, and then what gets me more amped up than, than all of that is that then the world can change, our city can change as they see a, a large group of people experiencing the grace and the power of God. And so Paul goes on to say, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We can shine like lights in the world. When we were out in our city this week with Serve Medford, we had people stop us saying, you know what, I've been watching what you've been doing. Why are you doing this? What is all this about? We don't see people come into our park and volunteer their time and sacrifice their resources to give back to our neighborhood. What's the deal? And as we shine like lights in the world, not because there's something special about us, but because the grace of God in us, then we can say, you know what, God has served us in Christ, and we're just compelled to serve others. God has loved us in Christ. We're compelled to love others. God has been generous to, toward us in Christ. We are compelled to be generous toward others. So we change. The church changes. The world can change. Our city can change. But that's not all that's most important. And God is glorified. All of this is about the glory of God, making much of God. He is supreme. He is the one that we want to point to as great and glorious. And so as we work out our salvation, it is God who works in us both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure. This is about the pleasure of God, God being pleased with us so that people might know who he is and come to worship him just as we have come to worship him. And so my encouragement to you is to discipline yourself, to place yourself under the streams of God's grace through depending on God to work in you so that these massive results, massive ramifications of gospel renewal might change us, change our church, change our city, so that in all of these things, God might be glorified. That is why we exist. So let me ask you just briefly, have you received this salvation that we're talking about today? You can't work out what you don't possess. So if you've come here today and we're talking about every knee bowing before God one day, uh, does that give you angst? Does that make you, you know, nervous as if God might not accept you? Well, you can be made right through Christ, through his sacrifice for you by admitting your need for him, asking God to forgive you, trusting in Christ and following him with your life. You can cry out to him today. And he will save you. He will work his salvation in you so that you can work it out day by day by day. So to close this message, let me read you the benediction of Hebrews chapter 13. And I want to read it just as a prayer over our church that all of these things found in Philippians 2, 13, 12 and 13 would be true for us. The writer of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace who brought Again, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we know that there is absolutely no limit to what you can do in us. Your spirit is powerful beyond our ability to comprehend. And so, Lord, we pray that we would hear this word from from your word, from Paul in Philippians 2, that we would be compelled to discipline ourselves, to work out our salvation, all the while depending on you to work in us. God, we wanna see individuals' lives change, just like we have over the past two, three years since we've been in Medford and starting this church, to see countless people giving their life to Christ and, and changing, and we wanna see we want to see more of that, God. We want to see you at work in, in the lives of individuals and in the lives of this church as a whole, the life of this church, so that we could shine for you, so that others might know the joy of following Christ, and so that ultimately you would receive worship and glory. So as we continue to sing in, in song here, respond in song, God, we ask that that you would show us areas where we can just repent and take steps to, to align our life with, with what you desire for us. And God, we look forward to how you will do your great work and, and receive glory among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.